Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their due context in the weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is, could only be coronavirus. First story of this week is, could only be coronavirus. This is in the Daily Mail. Mark Zuckerberg says Facebook will give the World Health Organization free ads and remove false claims and conspiracy theories in ongoing battle against coronavirus misinformation. Who decides what's a theory and misinformation? They do. The article says, Facebook has revealed more measures to help its users quickly access accurate information regarding the coronavirus outbreak. The social network is providing the World Health Organization with as many free ads as it needs for its coronavirus response. You see, I've said all along that social media is a vehicle for what some people call the permanent government deep state, and it's censoring so that eventually what people will ever see and hear is what the deep state and permanent government want them to see and hear. By permanent government, I mean that which is always there while politicians come and go. And this story is an obvious example of what I've said, as you could get, really, in that respect. It is also removing false claims and conspiracy theories, the article continues, that have been flagged by leading global health organisations as it seeks to ensure users are not misinformed about the virus and its risks. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg detailed the new features in a post on Wednesday morning. Users who search for coronavirus on Facebook will see a pop-up at the top of search results directs them to the World Health Organization or local health authority for the latest information. In the case of UK-based users, this will be the NHS website. This is now a global challenge we spent the past month working with health authorities to coordinate our response, Zuckerberg said in the post. We're focused on making sure everyone can access credible and accurate information, what is officially deemed to be credible and accurate information, which is not always, in fact, in many cases, not the same thing. This is critical, he continues, in any emergency, but it's especially important when there are precautions you can take to reduce the risk of infection. The CEO also outlined efforts to stop hoaxes and harmful misinformation from appearing in users' news feeds that capitalise on their concerns. These include false claims, theories and ads that try to exploit the situation, such as those for face masks, which are next to useless, by the way. I know that from someone who uses masks often in their business because of the industry they work in. They work in a powder coating factory and they know they're useless but it's it's what they've got they are useless anyway it goes on these include false claims theories and ads that try to exploit the situation such as those for face masks that have advertised limited supply to boost sales facebook will be working with global health experts and give support and millions more in ads credits to other organizations in February, the company said it would ban advertisements for products offering any cures or prevention around the coronavirus outbreak and those that create a sense of urgency around the situation. Facebook had to cancel its annual F8 developers conference, I assume that's supposed to be, which was due to take place in May because of the virus. The latest figures for coronavirus cases worldwide stats at nearing 93,000 infections with more than 3,100 deaths. Other social media platforms have been taking steps to improve their coverage of the virus officially called COVID-19 or COVID-19. Searches on Pinterest for coronavirus take users to a curated web page, while World Health Organization launched an account on video app TikTok late last week. <sighs> TikTok. Don't get me started. Google also teamed up with the World Health Organization to launch an SOS alert dedicated to the coronavirus at the end of January. The search engine prioritizes well, information on the virus from the World Zuckerberg Health Organization, including safety tips and WHO Twitter updates on the spread of the virus and how to stay safe. Cult, which owns military intelligence and owns Israel, as I explained in an episode called All Roads Lead to Israel. So whenever he's speaking, the cult is speaking. Facebook was created by the Pentagon. Provable fact and runs its platform on behalf of the cult which owns the Pentagon. It's very clear that coronavirus, whether real or manufactured, 
is being exploited on behalf of the cult to justify an enormous transformation of society, including totalitarian lockdown of society, which I talk about in episode 31, cashless society, which I talk about in episode 35, restrictions on travel, episode 6, lack of physical contact, dividing people, including young and old, lack of large-scale public events, stopping people coming together, divide and rule, small businesses being impacted by the economic implications, episode 32, the impact on trade and commerce affecting small businesses, a massive economic crash, episode 59, part 1. We're looking at a long-planned agenda, the very agenda I've been communicating since pay-per-view began. Society is gender-driven, and if you can access that agenda, you can predict the future. It's not really prediction, it's just knowing that society is agenda-driven, and so if nothing intervenes, or nobody intervenes to stop that agenda, then it's going to happen. And that's the whole point of pay-per-view, is to alert people to that fact. All these things have been in the planning for a very long time, as part of the cult's agenda, and coronavirus in terms of the response to it justifies so much of the agenda and in the previous episode I talked about some of the cult agenda goals which could be realized as a response to the coronavirus under the guise of protecting people there's an article here in the Daily Mail on that subject Britons could be forced to put their lives on hold for three months under coronavirus battle plan that would see troops on the streets, police ignoring minor crime and patients chirped out of hospitals amid warning that one in five workers could go sick. Of course, this is the totalitarian society emerging. Britons could be forced to put their lives on hold for three months under a battle plan to combat coronavirus amid warnings today that the deadly disease could incapacitate a fit of the UK's workforce. And what will replace the UK's workforce? Well, that many people are not at work. AI, automation which has long been the plan, and with the economic implications of that, it would be the perfect time to introduce a universal credit, a universal basic income, which is also the plan, and I've talked about that in episode 22. All these things I've talked about before. Boris Johnson set out the government's blueprint to deal with a mass outbreak of the bug that includes a raft of socially unique and economically costly contingency moves as a last resort. Sporting events could be asked and social distancing strategy would see people encouraged to work from home to avoid unnecessary travel, while an army of NHS volunteers could be recruited to help ease the burden on the health service. As the number of confirmed UK cases passed 50, it revealed police could ignore low-level crime and troops could be deployed on the streets if officers were incapacitated through illness. Another element of the agenda, the emergence of the military police force to replace the police force we've had up to this point, as psychopathic as many police officers are anyway, already. In America, they don't need to do that in certain places because there's many places in America where that already is the case anyway. Hospital patients not suffering from the disease could also be sent home to free up beds and local authorities will be helped with the challenge of dealing with increasing numbers of deaths among the elderly and vulnerable because it's only those with compromised immune systems or the vulnerable who are likely to die from coronavirus everyone else it won't necessarily be pleasant but it won't kill you so it's an enormous number of people who don't die from coronavirus i've heard it suggested that that was coronavirus and they got over it and they're fine now there was no panic there was no isolation there was no wash your hands every time you come in from outside there was no you got to cancel this, you got to cancel that. They were ill, they got over it. If that's what they had, and it's been suggested that it was. 
Anyway, the article continues. These measures could be in place of up to 12 weeks in a bid to contain the spread of the virus and treat those affected. The striking scenario emerged as Boris Johnson published the action plan, warning at a press conference that it was now highly likely there would be a major outbreak of coronavirus in the UK. The threat was underlined this afternoon as it emerged the number of confirmed cases has jumped from 39 to 51 in the past day. The PM said the government would take all necessary and reasonable steps, but appeal for the public to keep going about our business as usual. Asked whether he thought the UK still had the bulldog spirit to combat the virus, Prime Minister said, I do think that this is a national challenge. The potential is there for this to be something that our country has to get through. But I have absolutely no doubt that we have the resources and the health service to get through it, as much as the health service functions now. The report stresses that the response is still in the containment phase, with just 39 confirmed cases in this country so far. But experts fear that they will have to shift to delay tactics, effectively damage limitation, within days or weeks after a rising infections across Europe. A reasonable worst-case scenario would see 80% of the UK population contract the virus, with up to a fifth of employees unable to work in peak weeks. Such an outbreak could take hold within such an outbreak could take hold within weeks, and it will be three months before its highest point was reached. Scientists are still hoping that if rapid spread can be staved off until the summer, warmer weather will help, but are becoming increasingly pessimistic about the prospects of avoiding a major outbreak in the UK. The 28-page action plan published by the government today was agreed at the first emergency COBRA meeting to be chaired by the PM yesterday. It states that the vast majority of cases will have only mild to moderate effects on individuals, but points out that the virus is highly infectious. As it is a new virus, a lack of immunity in the population and the absence as yet of an effective vaccine means that COVID-19 has the potential to spread extensively, the document says. The current data seems to show that we are all susceptible to catching this disease and thus it seems more likely than not that the UK will be significantly affected. In other key developments, the US Federal Reserve cut interest rates by half a percent in a shock emergency move designed to shield the world's largest economy from the impact of the coronavirus. There is speculation the Bank of England could follow suit after Governor Mark McCartney said the international economic response to coronavirus will be powerful and timely, but played down fears there will be a worse hit than the 2008 credit crunch. Well, a massive, a global economic crash is a possibility, and there's every possibility that it could be at least partly engineered into place under the guise of it happening purely as a result of their response to coronavirus, because a new financial global system is designed to replace it which has been the cult's agenda all along a global centralized banking system to dictate global finance to every country and a world cashless currency and we're now hearing that money can carry the virus so it's better to switch to it's better to use a credit card instead the treasury is preparing to find billions of pounds in next week's budget to help firms cope with the financial fallout ba easyjet and ryanair cancelled hundreds of flights ruining the plans of thousands of travelers Global economic growth could be slashed in half, according to the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. The public were urged to clean their smartphone screens with alcohol wipes twice a day to help prevent the spread. At least 11 more schools closed after positive coronavirus tests or scares, despite government advice to shut only on the orders of health officials. The NHS 111 helpline reported it was receiving a 70% increase in calls compared with last year. But how many of them were coronavirus cases and how many of them were people concerned they could have it? Stores reported seeing a surge in panic buying and experts warned of food rights in the worst case scenario. As many as 5 million workers could be left without sick pay if they were forced to stay home. The health secretary said the government had powers to compel patients to self-isolate if they refused to. The World Health Organization, a branch of the United Nations, which sits on land donated by the Rockefellers, by the way, warned that the situation was now uncharted territory. Buckingham Palace said an investiture today would go ahead and there were no plans to alter royal itineraries. City firms banned 
hot desking allows me to use more than 25 staff. Speaking in Downing Street, flat by Chief Medical Officer for England, Chris Whitty and Chief Scientist Sir Patrick Vallance, Mr Johnson said the government's plan was to contain, delay, research, mitigate. Let me be absolutely clear that for the overwhelming majority of people who contract the virus, this will be a mild disease from which they will speedily and fully recover, as we have already seen, he said. But I fully understand public concern, your concern, about the global spread of the virus, and it's highly likely that we will see a growing number of UK cases, and that's why keeping the country safe is the government's overriding priority, and our plan means we are committed to doing everything possible based on the advice of our world-leading scientific experts to prepare for all eventualities. He made a good point where he said, the overwhelming majority of people who contract the virus will be suffering from a mild disease in which they will speedily and fully recover. I mean, it's just a, an advanced form of flu, and regular flu kills far more people every year without any mass panic. The plan published today says, in the event of mass infections, government will aim to minimise the social and economic impact subject to keeping people safe. There will be population distancing strategies such as school closures, encouraging greater home working and reducing the number of large-scale gatherings to slow the spread of the disease. School closures. Well, at least the kids won't be programmed with the official narrative of everything and will be able to be kids as long as they can be kept away from their brain rewiring technology, that is. Pensioners will be advised to stay away from events such as VE Day commemorations to avoid putting themselves at risk However, experts say that an infected person is as likely to pass on the virus to 12 people in a pub as in a 70,000 seater stadium. Police would concentrate on responding to serious crimes and maintaining public order. I talk about the education system in episode 21 and why it's just a programming operation. And even more obviously all the time. The article continues. Meanwhile, the armed forces can be called upon to backfill gaps in emergency services and provide other assistance if required. The Ministry of Defence has put in place plans to ensure the delivery of its operations in the UK and overseas. There are also well-placed arrangements for defence to support to civil authorities if requested, the document says. The police could be asked to enforce road and building closures and the army could be drafted in to enforce lockdowns where necessary. The report also highlights the threat to the NHS, which could come under extreme pressure from a wave of cases. I've talked before about the plan to replace the NHS with a privatised system. And, of course, many people are opposed to that, which is encouraging. But that's another agenda goal that could be realised as a result of the response to coronavirus. Under mitigation plans, non-coronavirus patients could be discharged early from hospitals to recuperate at home and routine operations postponed. Recently retired doctors, nurses and other staff could be brought back to help increase capacity. Some non-urgent care may be delayed to prioritise in triage or triage service delivery. Staff rostering changes may be necessary, including calling leavers and retirees back to duty. We will consider legislative options, if necessary, to help systems and services work more effectively in tackling the outbreak. Closing schools will not necessarily be an initial step as children seem less badly affected by coronavirus, but the option is being kept open. Teachers could also be allowed to take larger classes than usual to help reduce disruption to society. The plan also makes a grim reference to the need to deal with the strain on more capacity should a serious outbreak occur. There could well be an increase in deaths arising from the outbreak, particularly among vulnerable and elderly groups, it said. Pretty much only among vulnerable and elderly groups. Mr Johnson said there were long-established emergency plans for ensuring everyone who died was treated with dignity. Asked about the military being drafted in to help keep order, he said the army is, of course, always ready to backfill as and when, but that is under the reasonable worst-case scenario. The PM gathered his cabinet after putting himself at the head of the response. Downing Street insiders have warned that life cannot carry on as we know if the virus gets a full grip in the UK. 
Chancellor Rishi Sunak is expected to tear up his budget plans to focus on the issue, unlocking billions of pounds to bolster services and proper businesses hammered by the economic consequences. Mr Johnson warned of a very significant expansion of the disease possibly in days as it spreads across Europe. However, amid signs of panic in schools and shops, he called for business as usual for now with a focus still on containing coronavirus. Health Secretary Matt Hancock has said the total has risen to 51 when this article was published. In a common statement, he said the situation facing the country is increasingly serious. Globally and at home, the number of cases continues to rise. As of 9am today, and this is published on 3rd of March. As of 9am today, there were 51 confirmed cases in the UK and it's becoming more likely that we will see widespread transmission here in this country. Hancock said the government was pushing through emergency legislation to take the powers it might need in the coming weeks. Right now, we do not recommend the cancelling of mass events in schools as well should not be closing unless there is a positive case and schools have the advice to close. Mr Hancock told BBC Breakfast, there may be things we have to do down the line that we don't want to, but we would need the powers to do that, hence proposing emergency legislation. Would-be NHS volunteers have to wait between three and six months while they undergo criminal records checks, occupational health assessments and training. By the time they've been cleared, the pandemic is likely to have come and gone and Mr Hancock is hoping to make the process easier and more efficient. Later this week, a major public information campaign will be launched, selling out clear steps the public can take to limit the spread of the virus, including washing their hands regularly. Nicola Sturgeon phoned into yesterday's meeting of the government's COBRA meeting. COBRA is the Cabinet Office briefing rooms, which are used for committees which coordinate the actions of government bodies in response to national or regional crises. Nicola Sturgeon, who phoned into yesterday's meeting of the government's COBRA meeting, revealed that experts believe that in a realistic worst-case outcome, 50 to 80% of Scots could catch the virus in the coming months. The SNP leader said that 4% of Scots could end up being hospitalised over a long period. Whitehall sources acknowledge this could translate into more than 2 million people across the UK. Chancellor Rishi Sunak last night acknowledged that a severe outbreak had hit the economy but said the Treasury was working on a package to support your families, your businesses and the public services on which you rely. 2 million out of 77, 78 million. Just puts it into context. Officials are understood to be preparing to set aside billions of pounds in next week's budget to help firms and workers cope with the economic fallout from a potentially major epidemic. Meanwhile, Bank of England boss Mark Carney has warned the economic shock caused by coronavirus could prove large, but says central banks and governments worldwide are preparing a powerful response. The bank's outgoing governor told MPs on the Treasury Select Committee that while the hitch to the economy in the UK and globally could be significant, it will ultimately be temporary. He said UK policymakers stand ready to act as appropriate to support the British economy and financial system and that there was likely to be a fiscal and monetary policy response both here and globally. The collective response will be both powerful and timely, according to Mr Carney. He said the Bank of England's role is to help UK businesses and households manage through an economic shock that could prove large but will ultimately be temporary. The bank will take all necessary steps to support the UK economy and financial system consistent with its statutory responsibilities. He added that he has been holding a series of discussions with the Chancellor over the issuance that the bank is ensuring all necessary contingency plans are in place. The committee heard the bank is considering a variety of policy options while Chancellor Richard Sunak is also looking at fiscal measures with the budget due on March the 11th. His comments come as world stock markets rebanded again on Tuesday with the FTSE 100 index up around 2% on expectations that central banks globally will cut rates to counter the impact of coronavirus. Mr Connolly said the economic impact in hard-hit countries around the world could be felt across at least one quarter and possibly two as the mitigation measures for the outbreak have gone beyond the containment phase to the delay phase.
Comparing the outbreak to the 2008 financial crisis, he said that while it left lasting scars on the economy, the impact of the virus, also known as COVID-19, is expected to be disruption, not destruction. The bank is set to give more details on its expectations for the economic impact when it meets to decide on interest rates on March 26th. Social media has a very important role in stopping the spread of misinformation about the coronavirus outbreak, the Prime Minister has said. I featured a story about social media censoring misinformation or what's claimed to be misinformation about coronavirus in the last episode. Boris Johnson said social networking platforms had a responsibility to prevent theories about the virus spreading online. The Prime Minister was speaking at a press conference in 10 Downing Street outlining the government's plan to respond to the outbreak of the illness known as COVID-19. We've all got to be very responsible and the media has a very important role in this, particularly the social media and electronic media of all types, he said. I'm sure they will want to convey the right messages and convey the right balance and risk. It comes as experts warn that the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories about the illness online could cause as much damage as the virus itself. Dr. Daniel Jolly, senior lecturer in psychology at Northampton University and PhD researcher in social and legal psychology, Pierre Lamberty from the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, said that allowing misinformation to spread can lead to people distrusting health organisations and potentially ignoring their recommendations, placing their health at risk. They argue that many conspiracy theories arise during moments of crisis in society as a way of trying to make sense of a chaotic situation. People who believe in such theories tend to distrust groups they perceive as powerful, with many theories revolving around the idea of those in power acting to stay in control. As a result, the experts warn that if people do not trust health organisations, they are more likely to ignore medical advice and therefore be more at risk. Who decides if it's a conspiracy theory or if it's fact? And basically, anything different to what the official establishment narrative says must by definition be wrong. That's the view. Or, as I saw it on a meme once, brilliantly, the system, the establishment basically, the system knows best and is always right. And that includes academia, that includes all of it. And there's another section here about the panic buying. And when people are in fear, of course, you stop thinking straight. And one of the expressions of that panic is panic buying. And of course, the more one person buys, the less another person has. It brings out this everyone for themselves mentality. Panic buying Brits strip supermarket shelves of pasta, couscous and water. The shelves of British supermarkets are emptying at pace and staples are being rationed as coronavirus stockpiling spiralled out of control today amid warnings of food rights of the crisis worsens. Shortages previously limited to antibacterial hand gel and hand soap and spread to covered items such as rice, pasta, couscous, pot needles, bottled water, toilet roll and pet food, as well as chilled items including milk, butter and yogurt. Of course there are many people who are in difficult times financially and they use food banks so what's the impact on food banks going to be and the impacts on those people as with their response to the coronavirus the article continues pharmacy shelves are also emptying paracetamol ibuprofen and immune system boosting tablets such as barocca as people prepare to fight off the flu-like illness that's called claimed hundreds of lives worldwide hundreds of lives in a world of nearly eight billion people again it helps to put the numbers into context. Facebook and Twitter is packed with photographs of empty shelves from major supermarkets across the UK where shoppers appear to have thrown empty boxes into the aisles in the mad scramble for items. Men online readers have also shared pictures of their well-stocked larders as people prepare for weeks in isolation. One reader said, I have been trying for three days to buy pasta but I cannot see any as most shops have run out of pasta and pasta sauce. 
The scramble for field has also revealed what Britons do not consider essentials despite a China-style shutdown the community has predicted, including some flavours of crisps and confectionery including Terry's chocolate orange. London Ajaxia Warren tweeted, interesting to see what people are stockpiling in my local supermarket. Bare shelves for rice, pasta, hand-washed tissues and new roll. Also interesting to see what people are not stockpiling. Polenta, crumpets and get well cards. Their loss is my game. Hashtag stockpiling. Shops have seen a surge in panic buying fueled by the coronavirus crisis and supermarkets have now drawn up contingency plans to feed the nation in the event of a sudden escalation that has emerged. With two chains already rationing sales, a former Tesla executive said a major outbreak in Britain would quickly lead to empty shelves and food riots. Riots, perfect for justifying surveillance and control. Ricardo has emailed customers to warn it is running out of home delivery slots due to exceptionally high demand of particular large orders. Weight Trains reported seeing more demand for cleaning products and hand sanitizers on the Tesco's website are sold out of hand gel. Lidl said it is experiencing a significant increase in demand for durable products and disinfectants. It is now limited sales of hand sanitizers to two per customer as has Boots. Industry experts insist that supermarkets have continuously plans to cope with the worst case scenario and despite the pressure will ensure food remains on shelves. Under the plan, supermarkets will work alongside suppliers to scale back the variety of available foods and groceries instead of paying attention to maintaining the supply of staple products, The Guardian reported. However, senior food markets analyst Bruno Montaigne, a former Tesla executive, warned if a major coronavirus outbreak happens, that will quickly lead to panic buying, empty shelves and food riots. Some people will stay calm because there's nothing to be gained by panicking. So not everyone will be rioting and panic buying. Some will, but not everyone. Mr. Mortain, who now works for stockbrokers, Bernstein told Industry Magazine the growth of plans are surely being drawn up with suppliers to rationalise product ranges when necessary. The objective is not to scaremonger. The industry has plans to deal with this. This is interesting. I came across this. It's very clear there is an element of manipulation with coronavirus news. Watch the number 400,000 or 400. Google coronavirus 400,000 and see for yourself. Search a video on YouTube called Coronavirus, a Worldwide Scam. This is all you need to see. And I'm not saying it's a scam, but that's the name of the video. It's worth watching because what you'll see is an endless number of articles, many in the mainstream media, which feature the number 400,000. Bear in mind when you watch, like I said, I'm not saying coronavirus is a scam or not. The constant recurrence of the numbers 400,000 or 400 needs serious questioning because it doesn't just relate to numbers affected, but other things as well. The statistical chances of it all being coincidence is basically none. So if there's manipulation on that front, what other manipulation is there in terms of coronavirus news? The people most at risk from coronavirus are those who are already vulnerable to disease, just like seasonal flu, as I said earlier. And this is an article in... Breitbart or on Breitbart.com alternative news website although this is called New England Journal of Medicine coronavirus could be no worse than flu An editorial published Friday in the New England Journal of Medicine this was published on the 28th of February an editorial published Friday in the New England Journal of Medicine speculated that the coronavirus currently causing panic in world markets could turn out no worse than a severe seasonal influenza in terms of mortality Citing an analysis of the available data from the outbreak in China, the authors note that there have been zero cases among children younger than 15 and that the fatality rate is 2% at most and could be considerably less than 1%. Those who died have been elderly, 
or those who were already suffering from another illness, as with ordinary flu. The underlying data suggests that the symptoms vary and fewer than one in six of the cases reported were severe. The authors note that coronavirus looks to be much less severe than other recent outbreaks of respiratory illnesses. The authors say the overall clinical consequences of COVID-19 may also be more akin to those of a severe seasonal influenza, which has a case fatality rate of approximately 0.1%, or a pandemic influenza similar to those in 1957 and 1968, rather than a disease similar to SARS or MERS, which have had case fatality rates of 9-10% and 36% respectively. The article continues, the vast majority of patients recover and among those who were hospitalised, the median stay thus far is 12 days. Coronavirus, they note, does spread easily and the average infected person has infected two other people. That means the US should expect the illness to gain a foothold, but they note travel restrictions on China imposed by President Donald Trump over the objections of some critics may have helped slow the spread of the virus. China has long been a target of the United States, as I talk about in episode 49. At the moment, more people die from seasonal flu and heart disease, cancer and road traffic accidents than coronavirus, by far. So it's important to keep that perspective and keep the situation in context. And don't panic. When you panic, you stop thinking straight. And when people are in fear, they look outside of themselves for someone or something to protect them from what they've been manipulated to fear. And one of those solutions suggested will be a vaccine. Watch the vaccine. I think we need to be very wary when it comes to a vaccine. I've talked about vaccines before in episode 44, part 2, and episode 54, part 2, and episode 64. And it's interesting, actually, in episode 64, I talk about plans by Health Minister Penny Lewis to make criticism of vaccines online a criminal offence. It's interesting that that happened around the time of this coronavirus situation that that was suggested and this coronavirus whether it's real or manufactured will be exploited i think it i think it already is starting to be to bring in the cult's agenda under the guise of protection and this is why we need to take time to do our own research and find information for ourselves and stay calm and thus be able to think straight and just consider whether these measures are necessary because they can only happen with public support and much of the occult's agenda, which I've laid out during the course of pay-per-view, will be implemented and will stay around after coronavirus if we allow it. And that's why we need to just take a step back and look at it dispassionately from an objective perspective rather than being caught up in it, staying calm and just looking at it coldly and rather than letting emotions get the better of you. Because then you stop thinking straight and then... We're up the creek without a paddle then, if enough people do that. So staying calm is one of the best pieces of advice. So that's it for this segment. Stay tuned for the full episode. And for more on coronavirus, check out episode 64, 66 and 67. And the next subject this week is pensions. This is in the Express. State pension age is rising. Will you be a state pension age changes on a fairly regular basis. Currently, the government has plans to increase the state pension age in increments until October 2020, where the state pension age will be 66 for everyone. Changes to the state pension age took place on Friday. A new wave of retirees are newly eligible. State pension age is currently 65 for both men and women, but this is gradually being increased to 66 for everyone. The increase has been occurring every two months for roughly a year, and under the new changes, a specific group of people born between specific dates will see their state pension age rise. After this change, anyone born between the 6th of 
June 1954 and 5th of July 1954, we see the state pension age rise, rise from 65 to 66. State pension is not usually paid automatically, even if a person is well into their retirement years. A state pension will need to be claimed, but people should be sent a letter from the state no later than two months before they qualify to remind them. There are multiple methods for claiming state pension, and it could be claimed even if the letter from the government is not received. As the state pension age changes relatively frequently, it can be difficult to keep track of when a person qualifies. The government is also committed to reviewing the state pension age at regular intervals too, potentially making the issue worse. Fortunately, it's possible to check on individual state pension ages with a tool provided by the government. This tool takes into account the latest changes to state pension age, so the answer gives, it gives is always accurate. The user will simply need to provide their date of birth and gender, and the tool will provide an exact date from when a person will reach retirement age. The next change for state pension ages will occur on 6th of May 2020. If people choose to take their state pension, they will receive income every month. The amount they receive will depend on their national insurance history, but to receive any amount, at least 10 years of contributions will be needed. The full amount for the new state pension is £168.60 a week. In order to receive this, a person will need a minimum of 35 years of contributions. It is possible to increase this amount further by deferring or delaying a claim. A person can check on their state pension by requesting a forecast which will detail an amount they will receive in retirement. If this amount is too low for a person, they may be able to boost it by making voluntary national insurance contributions. If a person has gaps in their national insurance, they can pay Class 3 national insurance contributions to fill it up. Self-employed people will pay Class 2. A certain amount of planning will be needed by anyone claiming state pension as the initial payments may take a while to come through. Currently, state pension is paid in arrears, meaning that the payments will cover the previous four weeks and not the coming four weeks. On top of this, there will also be a slight delay with receiving the first payment. While payments usually come through once every four weeks, it could take up to five weeks for the first payment to come through once it has been claimed. The specific days of the week that the payments come through will also depend on the individual's national insurance number. Well, establishment authority doesn't care about old people. We're given the impression with the coronavirus situation that the establishment authority cares about old people. These are the old people who pay in throughout their lives for a pension through paying tax and then are offered a fraction of that money as a pension. Many elderly people don't get enough money to pay for utilities and food and only just survive. War veterans are treated disgracefully by the system. Veterans who were scarred for life psychologically and or veterans who were physically impacted as a result of their time at war. The system doesn't care about them. Elderly people are now being exploited to sell the cult's agenda on the back of the coronavirus hype. A lot of it is. I talked in episode 47 about the movie I, Daniel Blake which displayed the callous disregard the establishment and authorities have for people. During the royal wedding of Princess Eugenie, homeless people were cleared off the streets where the celebrations were taking place in case they spoil the look of the celebrations of a wedding which should have been paid for by the family of those getting married and made the couple themselves. A family which have so much wealth and opulence, they can live to 500 and still not spend all of it. A family who are only in luxury because the people keep them in luxury and are only the royal family because their DNA. If elderly people really were a concern, why would they not be told through the media and the health system what vitamins and minerals to take to boost their immune system? Vitamin D is a vitally important vitamin and in a country like Britain which doesn't see that much sun, we don't get nearly enough of it. Everyone's aware of vitamin C but vitamin D and others are important and they're certainly not talking about it now when it would be very beneficial to elderly people and those with weak immune systems. Elderly people are most at risk from coronavirus as we know for this reason. When the immune system is focusing on an already existing health problem, especially if it's a weakened immune system, which it is for many elderly people, the immune system is using most of its resources on that health problem. When another threat enters the body, the immune system panics 
just lashes out basically at the new problem because it's already stretched in the first place. And if it was a stronger immune system, there may not be another problem to deal with other than the new threat. So it will be strong and it will be able to deal with it. This lashing out by the immune system releases proteins called cytokines. And this is known as a cytokine storm. There's an article here in, on the Lancet website, of course, the medical journal, talking about this. COVID-19. Consider cytokine storm syndromes and immunosuppression. Cytokine, by the way, is spot C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E. And it says this. Accumulating evidence suggests that a subgroup of patients with severe COVID-19 might have a cytokine storm syndrome. We recommend identification and treatment of hyperinflammation using existing approved therapies and proven safety profiles to address the immediate need to reduce the rise in mortality. A cytokine profile is associated with COVID-19 disease severity. On UAB News, University of Alabama, Birmingham, COVID-19, do not forget the host in treating this disease. Cytokines are inflammatory immunologic proteins that are there to fight off infections and ward off cancers. But when they are out of control, they can make you very ill. Cytokine storm is the result of an immune system gone wild. The body's own killer immune cells are often defective, weakened immune system basically, resulting in increased production of inflammatory proteins that can lead to organ failure and death. Cytokine storm syndrome may be at work in the current COVID-19 pandemic. From reading the literature, primarily out of China, many of the severely ill coronavirus infected patients appear to have clinical and laboratory features of a cytokine storm syndrome, or CSS, which is frequently fatal. CSS is an overly exuberant immune response to a triggering event. Frequently certain viral infections include deadly strains of influenza virus. No one knows why some people or not others develop this response, but there are likely host risk factors, including genetic mutations in genes that contribute to a familial form of this disease. Are there ways to measure CSS and are those measurements being done? An elevated serum, blood, basically, blood serum, an elevated serum ferritin test, which is cheap, readily available and quick, is a good first step for screening for CSS. There are a variety of other tests that can then help confirm or deny the presence of a cytokine storm syndrome. The immune system has different levels, basically, different methods. The first method or response is a general response to an incoming threat. The second response, or the second level, if you like, is a pre-programmed response specific and unique to a particular threat. For example, a viral infection or a bacterial infection or a toxin. In a strong immune system, it can often deal with the threat. There may be symptoms like a fever or a runny nose or throwing up, what you would call sickness, but the immune system deals with the threat. A weakened immune system does not deal with the threat or doesn't do it so well. And it unleashes these cytokines, which is basically an expression of the immune system in its panic just aiming in all directions, hoping to attack the threat in the process. Now, these symptoms I just mentioned is where mainstream medicine gets it wrong. Because a fever, for example, is actually the immune system using heat to attack a threat. There's an article here on nature.com, nature, a mainstream publication, and it's called How a Fever Helps the Immune System to Battle Infection. There's only a few paragraphs or so, but it basically describes what I'm saying. A fever fights infection by helping immune cells to crawl along blood vessel walls to attack invading microbes. Jian Feng Chen at the Shanghai Institute of Biochemistry and Cell Biology in China and his colleagues grew immune cells called T-cells from mice and raised the temperature of these cells from the normal mouse body temperature to 37 degrees to 40 degrees, the equivalent of a high fever. This heat triggered the T-cells to start producing heat shock proteins known as HSPS, which protect cells against stress. 
the HSBS travel to the inner surface of cells' outer membranes, where they bound to the tails of membrane proteins known as integrins. This process pulled these integrins together, and the integrin sections jutting from the cell's outer surfaces formed complexes that stuck to blood vessel walls. The formation of integrin complexes also triggered the migration of T cells to infection sites. The researchers then engineered mice to have a mutated form of integrin that could not bind to HSBS. When the team infected these animals with a diarrhea causing bacterium, known as Salmonella typhimurium, the mice died quickly from fever and infection. The findings suggest that therapies designed to raise levels of HSBS could help to fight infection, which is what a fever is. A runny nose is the body detoxing after the mucous membranes in the nasal cavity have trapped an allergen or bacteria, and the nose runs to literally drain away the allergen or bacteria from the body. As it does, mucus may drain down to the back of the throat and cause coughing, and you might get a tickly throat as a result. Throwing up is the body literally flushing out a virus or bacteria or toxins through the mouth. This is why people throw up when they have a hangover, because alcohol is a toxin, and the body is flushing out the toxin. This is why pure alcohol, ethanol, is so dangerous to the body, so the alcohol content has to be diluted to make the drink safe to consume. So in this way, these symptoms are actually immune system responses. It's what they are. They're actually a good thing. Not pleasant, but a good thing from this perspective. The point is mainstream medicine treats these immune system responses as a problem in themselves. So you'll get prescribed a drug by a GP, for example. And as I said, I talk about pharmaceutical medicine in episode 17. The body is dealing with the threat, the illness, by instigating these immune reactions. The cytokine storm, for example, an immune reaction, as a result of unleashing these cytokines and the immune system attacking the body it's trying to protect, attacks where? The lungs. What is claimed to be a symptom of coronavirus? Problems with the lungs. And on that point, there's an article here on newscientist.com called New Flu Drug Calms the Storm. This is from 2003. A new drug that dampens the body's overzealous immune response to the deadliest strain of flu has shown good results in mice. The approach could hold promise for treating a range of respiratory diseases in humans, including the deadly SARS virus, said UK scientists. Respiratory viruses like influenza and respiratory syncytial virus can be fatal and are the third leading cause of death in babies. It is believed that much of the damage they cause results from the body's immune system going into overdrive. Tracy Hussle and colleagues at Imperial College London tested the drug on mice infected with influenza A, a strain of which killed 20 million people in 1918. They found it stopped the serious weight loss seen and cut inflammation in the lungs by about two-thirds. We can reduce it by two-thirds and the immune system still clears the virus so you don't get the clinical symptoms, Hussle told New Scientist. John Oxford, a virologist and influenza expert at Queen Mary University of London, is excited by the results. Obviously, it's a big jump from mouse to human, but we can do it, he says. Given that we are expecting a flu pandemic in the not-too-distant future, we need to build up our medicine cupboard. To dampen down the immune reaction, the researchers targeted a specific molecule present in the inflammation response called OX40. Normally, when the lungs are under attack from a virus, the body's T-cells are activated. These migrate to the lungs to attack the microbes, but they also initiate a second immune system attack called a cytokine storm. This surge of chemicals causes inflammation and when severe can seriously harm or even kill the patient. After one or two days, the T-cells increase production of OX40. 
explains Hustle. This molecule gives the T-cell a survival signal, which makes them hang around in the lungs for a lot longer. But new cells are arriving all the time, says Ian Humphreys, who led the study, so this prolonged presence is not needed and exacerbates the cytokine storm. The new drug, an MX40 fusion protein called MX40-IG, works by binding to the MX40 receptor and blocking activated T-cells. MX40-IG, supplied by the company Zenova Research, stopped the symptoms in flu in mice. Mice, given a controlled drug, lost 25% of their body weight, appeared hunched, withdrawn, and had lost their appetite six days after their infection. But mice with MX40-IG squirted into their noses did not have these symptoms. It's not a coronavirus symptom. It's a cytokine storm symptom. And cytokine storms happen as a result of a weakened immune system to start with. All those causes that are, in truth, as I've explained before, not least in episode 18 and episode 44, part 2, purposely to suppress health and suppress the population. When you get to the level of the cult, that's what it's about. But point is that coronavirus is being diagnosed on symptoms only. And how do you draw the line between symptoms for something else and coronavirus as i said earlier and it's this cytokine storm syndrome which is or reaction which is a reaction happens in people with weakened immune systems but not in strong immune systems because the strong immune system is already in a healthy body and so it's only got to deal with the one threat so it can throw the whole immune system at it various causes of a weakened immune system elderly people and those with underlying health conditions include crap and toxins in food and drink technologically generated electromagnetic radiation which i talk about in episode 44 part 2 pharmaceutical medicine which i talk about in episode 17 vaccines which i talk about in episode 44 part 2 lack of vitamins and minerals as i said earlier lack of nutrition from food food is a lot less nutritious than it used to be and all of this only weakens the immune system and it's done on purpose because the extreme satanic cult running global human society don't care about anyone in any way but they do have an agenda and well me to achieve a fundamental part of that agenda is depopulation and i explain why they have a depopulation agenda in episode 18 the death cult which is defined as a fringe religious group that glorifies or is obsessed with death runs the world and that's why we have the world we have they're not religious but they have their own satanic belief society is agenda driven not people driven and when people understand that, they realise the satanic death cult behind human society and what the agenda of that death cult is, then everything becomes clear in terms of why it's happening. And the next subject this week is cashless society, which I've talked about before. This is in the Daily Mail. Why is my money not good enough in this harsh cashless Tesco? The technology takeover of a city store is an empty experience. Welcome to the brave new world of cashless shopping, where Big Brother keeps an eye on your supermarket basket and you are served by robots rather than a friendly face. In the heart of the city of London, where pinstriped fat cats rub shoulders with riffraff like me is a Tesco Express store. Nothing strange about that. But by the entrance is a poster that reads, for a quicker checkout or a cashless store. This is double speak for no cash allowed here. Step inside and a couple of Tesco staff in white t-shirts jump out eagerly asking if I need help. It's as if they are in fear of losing their jobs to be replaced by robots. That's the idea. Sauntering down the aisles, clutching a cheese and onion sandwich, I make my way to the checkout. A stern-looking man, who I had mistaken for a customer, points to a bank of a dozen computer screens with scanners underneath. Each station is spied on by its own tablet screen that sits above the automated till. They have a tiny camera eye inside that looks suspiciously like the HAL 9000 robot from the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. Of course, HAL was 
AI. But this how does not talk in soothing tones. Instead, it gives me instructions on the screen to scan my items. Each automated checkout is a sign explaining card only, but my helpless look in the direction of a human waving three banknotes in the air is met with incredulity. Cash is simply not accepted in this store. Defeated, I whip out a debit card, but still manage to get things wrong. Having scanned the sandwich twice, I need someone to come over and cancel the erroneous purchase. It is just a 10 second wait, but it feels much longer. A belittling episode that leaves me feeling like a fool. This cashless shop was a strangely unsettling experiment. There was no rummaging around pockets for change or opening a purse or wallet in search of banknotes. I even missed looking into someone's face just to say hello. Rather than a brave new world, this technology takeover seemed an empty experience. The only other fully automated supermarket in Britain is another Tesco in Welwyn Garden City, Hertfordshire, the company's HQ. Fortunately, we are still a long way off from this supermarket utopia for retailers who will be able to save money by not employing so many staff and not having to deal with cash and all its security issues. And so I eagerly await Chancellor Rishi Sunak's first budget on Wednesday when he is to announce new laws to stop cash becoming extinct. He will force banks to ensure we can always have access to banknotes and coins. This move is expected to include getting banks to pay local pubs and shops to offer free cash back as revealed by the mail on Sunday. Shoppers I spoke to in the automated London Tesco store appreciate the convenience of having a robot to serve them, but they would still prefer the option to use cash. Account manager Shane Murphy had popped into the store to buy lunch. The 26-year-old says it is wrong to take away the choice of offering cash. The World Health Organization recently advised people to wash their hands if they have concerns after handling banknotes due to the coronavirus outbreak. But the Bank of England has pointed out debit and credit cards as well as phones can also carry bacteria and viruses. Shopper Sarah Bond 38 says, of course we are all concerned about the spread of the disease, but that is no reason to stop using cash. It sounds like a cynical ploy by the banking industry to justify going cashless. More so those that ultimately own the banking system, but I agree with the sentiment. Legal cashiers Kelsey Roos 19 and Natalia Ulekan 27 were shopping for biscuits and were not impressed by Tesco's lack of mantles or cash. Natalia says, what happens if you forget your purse when going to work? You borrow cash. If you want to spend money rather than pay by card, you should be allowed to do so as a basic human right. But society is agenda driven, not people driven, and so it's not about what's right for people, it's about what's right for the agenda. The agenda of the cult. Over the past two years, 9,000 cash machines have disappeared from high streets while 6,000 bank branches have closed, reducing the network by a third. This cost cutting drive is part of a push towards getting people to pay by card rather than cash. It is working. Bank industry body UK Finance believes only 9% of all payments will be cash based by 2028. In 15 years, banknotes and coins should be relics of a bygone age. You know, 2028, and of course, Look what's happening already in terms of what's being justified on the back of coronavirus and 2030 keeps coming up all over the place in relation to different areas of society. And, you know, this next 10 years really are the epicenter of whether people become aware of the society and world they're really living in and that there's an agenda behind it, what that agenda is and the mentality behind it and come together and take action to overturn it. Or this is the 10 years where the, the cult's agenda by 2030, at least maybe a little bit after, but not much after, is in place. The article continues. Natalie Simi, author of the Independent Access to Cash Review, published last year, says choice is vital and that 8 million people still want cash for day-to-day -day purchases. Simi, former boss of the Financial Ombudsman Service, says this move by Tesco is basically telling the most vulnerable in society and those that prefer to use cash that they are not welcome in a Tesco store. They should have a moral responsibility to look after the whole of society and not select those who they want as customers. 
article continues, Tesco is the largest retailer in the UK and last year posted pre-tax profits of almost £1.7 billion. It has 2,650 stores. The cash-free trial in London started at the end of last month. A Tesco spokeswoman says, the number of customers paying by cash is declining and so we are trialling the idea of a cash-free store. We look forward to customer feedback. It wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that they don't have to pay self-scan machines, would it? Well, I've talked about the cashless society before in episodes 11 and 35, the latter of which is called technocracy, which is very appropriate because society is planned to be a technocracy. Unelected bureaucrats and technical experts, including bankers, by the way, people who've never seen a ballot box in their life, and a society of total surveillance and run by technology, run by artificial intelligence. It's interesting that the British people voted in 2016 to leave a bureaucracy run by unelected figures in the European Union when society is increasingly moving towards a technocracy. One of the effects of the coronavirus scenario is the suspension of democracy, where executive orders and changes in society are just introduced without any parliamentary or public approval. I've said for so long, years before pay-per-view, that the plan is for a new financial and economic system involving a cashless currency. In the end, a global cashless currency and universal basic income is very much the forerunner to this agenda. Universal basic income is financial slavery, and it's designed to be so. People need to realise this is not about greed. Yes, a cashless society allows for tracking of every item purchased, so every item can be taxed by the government. But the government are not, nor are they ever, the origin of the agenda. It's a long, long, long plan, centuries back in truth, and it's playing out now. Remember the protocols quote from earlier about receipt of all kinds of benefits. It's so long planned. The real reason is control. If you live your life and keep any criticism of the government and authority or transgender or vaccines or the cause or extent of climate change or Israel or Zionism to yourself, then you'll be allotted an income every month. If you don't, you won't. It's all about control. And I would suggest being very careful when it comes to accepting or not a universal guaranteed income because it won't be about helping people or businesses, although that's how it will be sold. It'll be about control. And the final subject this week is migration. This is in the Daily Mail. President Erdogan says millions of migrants will head to Europe and the continent must share the migrant burden after opening Turkey's borders as Greeks say they fear invasion. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has told Europe it will have to accept the burden of millions of incoming migrants as Greece today tried to fend off an invasion of people. More than 13,000 migrants have gathered on the Turkish side of the river which runs 125 miles along the frontier and separates them from Greece and therefore the EU. Greek police were firing tear gas at the crowds as migrants tried to swim across the river or squeeze through fences at one of the few land crossings, although only dozens have succeeded so far. The UN Refugee Agency says around 1,200 people have arrived on Greek islands. One child died when a dinghy boat capsized during a sea crossing, the Greek Coast Guard said today. Turkish security forces also claimed that a Syrian migrant had died from injuries after a clash with Greek security forces, but Athens has branded the claim and an associated video fake news. The flow of migrants has triggered fears of a rerun of the 2015 refugee crisis when a million people crossed into Europe, most of them fleeing the Syrian civil war. This is what happened in 2015. It's repeating itself. Thousands at our borders, God help us, said a 63-year-old resident of the border village of Kastanis. Erdogan has been guarding Europe's borders since then, but opened the doors to his country's 3.6 million refugees in a move he has long threatened, hoping to pressure Western leaders over the conflict in Syria. He's already facing a backlash in Europe, where German Chancellor Angela Merkel said it was unacceptable to pressure the EU on the back of refugees. Unacceptable to pressure the EU, even though the EU has their open border policy. 
Angela Merkel is just a total front person for this cult. Not saying she knows the cult exists, but in terms of the agenda, is just a front, a willing front person. Anyway, the article continues. Turkish leader Erdogan, as is Erdogan, by the way, a total asset of the West. Turkish leader Erdogan remained defiant, telling party supporters in Ankara, after we opened the doors, there were multiple calls saying close the doors. I told them it's done, it's finished, the doors are now open, now you will have to take your share of the burden. Hundreds of thousands of crossing, it will reach millions, Erdogan claimed in a televised speech or their reports from the Greek border suggest the numbers are currently far smaller. There were crowds of several hundred people at the border shouting peace, peace and pleading to be let through into Greece. This is an invasion, said Georgios Karampatsakis. Mayor of Morassia village, a border crossing near the Evros River. What we were seeing is an endless migration crisis. What is Europe doing? What measures is it taking? Asked Yanis Siskoglu, a resident of Morassia. There are thousands at the border and there is no return route for them, he said. Greek police have been attempting to maintain calm and contain the flow of migrants using water cannons on them. They made use of tear gas as thousands of migrants tried to find a way across the border. Some of them responded to the officers by lobbing rocks while others tried to cut through border fences. One video clip showed parents scrambling to help their children as they struggled against the tear gas while another appeared to show the Greek Coast Guard harassing migrants at sea by firing warning shots at inflatable boats. Some migrants have attempted to swim across rivers or duck under fences while others dragged suitcases as they might towards the border where a large crowd of migrants waited, some wrapped in blankets or sleeping on dirt mounds. Greek authorities have already boosted border patrols using loud hailers to call on the migrants to stay on the Turkish side. The Greek government has also set up an automatic texting system for foreign mobile phones approaching the border, sending them the message, Greece is maximising border security, do not try to cross borders illegally. Erdogan agreed to guard Europe's borders and do a deal struck in 2016 in which he has paid more than £5 billion by the EU. Around a million Syrian moved to Germany at the height of the refugee crisis in 2015 and the influx has caused a series of political headaches for Angela Merkel ever since. After repeated threats, Erdogan finally pulled the plug on the agreement last Friday after Turkish soldiers were killed in Syria. Turkish police, coast guard and border security officials were ordered to stand down on refugees' land and sea crossings towards Europe in anticipation of the imminent arrival of refugees from Idlib. Erdogan wants NATO to assist him in the Syrian conflict where Turkey is helping rebels against Russian-backed government forces. The Syrian government's push into Idlib has forced nearly a million people to flee their homes, raising the prospect of even more refugees entering Turkey. I talk about the situation in Syria in terms of the Syrian civil war and Russia's role in helping Syria with Islamic State in episode 48. Turkish Foreign Minister Suleiman Soylu claims that more than 100,000 people have left Turkey, but there is no evidence to support his claim. German Chancellor Merkel said today it was unacceptable for Turkey to pressure the EU on the backs of refugees as thousands seek to enter the bloc. I find it completely unacceptable that President Erdogan and his government did not bring the dissatisfaction to us in the EU, but instead duped out on the backs of refugees, Merkel told a Berlin press conference, while acknowledging the additional burden on Turkey. Meanwhile, EU Migration Commissioner Margarita Schöner said no one can blackmail or intimidate the EU at a separate Berlin event. Britain announced that Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab will visit Ankara in an effort to appease Erdogan by underlining UK solidarity with Turkey. Bulgarian Prime Minister Boyko Borisov is heading to Ankara to discuss the migrant situation with Erdogan. Borisov said that a new migrant wave would threaten stability in the region as Europe is struggling to deal with the coronavirus outbreak. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis held an emergency meeting with his foreign affairs and defence teams. They decided to step up the level of deterrence at Greece's eastern borders to the maximum and to suspend submission of new asylum applications by those legally entering the country for one month. Greek government spokesman Stelios Patsas attacked Turkey over the situation. Turkey, rather than controlling the migrant and refugee trafficking rings, has itself become a trafficker, he said in a statement. Petsas added that Turkey was using the people gathered at the border as pawns in order to exercise diplomatic pressure.
the current situation constitutes an active, serious, exceptional and asymmetric threat to the country's national security, Petsas said. Greek government sources said that Greece had blocked some 10,000 people from crossing its border in the previous 24 hours. A total of 5,500 people were barred from entering Greece illegally and 60 people were arrested and charged with illegally entering the nation. A steady flow of inflatable dinghies and other crammed and unseaworthy craft arrived on the islands after crossing the Aegean Sea at the height of the 2015 crisis. A group of local people on Lesbos managed to stop around 50 migrants, including children for landing their boat after several hours at sea. Shouting, go back to Turkey. Furious locals at the port of Therme blocked the boats and hurled insults at the local representative of the UN Refugees Agency, while others attacked journalists and photographers, hitting them and throwing cameras into the water. We've got nothing against the refugees, but those who are prepared to come here must understand that this is how we will receive them now, said Despoina, a 47-year-old islander. On the road to the overcrowded Moriah camp on the island, another group of local people used chains and rocks to try to block the route of a police bus transporting migrants who arrived, the Greek news agency ANA reported. The anger of the people of Mariah is justified, said the mayor. Mariah cannot take any more arrivals. Well, the plan is to change the face of European society and erase European and white culture, all culture in the end, and destroy national identity. The plan includes a one-world religion, and this will be the extreme form of Islam known as Wahhabism which is not Islamic in truth, but the same belief as the cult. People talk about Muslims wanting to impose Sharia law, but it's not Muslims. It's Wahhabists following a, a distortion of the Islamic belief called Wahhabism, which was created by the cult, as I explained in War Rosalie to Israel. I explained the historical reasons for this in that episode. This is one reason why the Middle, Near East and North Africa were invaded and bombed, or civil war was instigated by the West to suit Israel, as I talk about in episode 49. This generated the very migration into Europe we're talking about. North American culture is being changed by migration from South America, which is also being regime changed by the West and Israel, as I talk about in episode 49. There's an article here on RT, and there's some great articles. We can't have Turkish laws on French soil. Macron vows to fight foreign imams preaching Islamist separatism. Paris will clamp down on imams from Muslim countries that arrive in France to push worshippers into violating the law, the country's president Emmanuel Macron said, warning Turkey cannot feed separatism on French soil. Macron promised to gradually end the program, allowing Muslim countries to send imams and teachers to France in order to teach languages and culture and supervised by the state. Speaking at the town of Mulhouse near the German border, he said the influence of foreign imams leads some to separate themselves from the Republic and therefore not respect its laws. The French leader singled out Turkey because, unlike Algeria, Morocco and Tunisia, Ankara has not yet reached an agreement on the program with Paris. Turkey today can make the choice to follow that path with us or not, but I won't let any foreign country feed a cultural, religious or identity-related separatism on our republic's ground, he said. You cannot have Turkish laws on French soil, no way, said Macron. There are currently 151 Turkish imams in France, according to the Interior Ministry. Macron stated that he was not trying to offend anyone, but will not be complacent either. In order to fight Islamist separatism, he asked the French Muslim Council to improve the training of imams so they can master French laws. Interior Minister Christophe Castano said that the practice of sending foreign imams to France will end in 2024. Turkish Parliament Speaker Mustafa Sentop blasted Macron's words as a sign of primitive Islamophobia. In a tweet, the senior lawmaker accused Paris of disrupting peace in Africa's Sahel and Libya and creating chaos in the Muslim world, as well as supplying arms to insurgent Libyan Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, who Ankara considers a putschist. And that is defined as someone who believes that a government should be removed by force. Of course, Khalifa Haftar was 
involved with the Libyan civil war, which removed Gaddafi on behalf of the West and Israel. France participated in the 2011 US-led intervention in Libya, the article continues, during which its longtime ruler Muammar Gaddafi was toppled and killed, I've just said. The North African country has since been devastated by a protracted civil war. Paris and Ankara clashed recently after Turkey threw its support behind the UN-backed Tripoli-based government against Haftar's forces that have been closing in on the city. Macron accused Turkey of undermining ceasefire in Libya. The officials in Tripoli, for their part, alleged that Paris has been supplying Haftar with weapons after French-made missiles were discovered at a base belonging to the anti-government forces. And Macron's right when he says we can't have Turkey's laws on French soil because we can't really have any other culture's laws being imposed in another country because that country has its own culture, its own way of doing things. And the idea is to remove culture, to remove the normal way of doing things. I've talked about George Soros' involvement in the migration crisis in episode 12 and his NGO network which is facilitating the migration crisis on one level and the migrants facing perilous sea journeys as a result. Soros is also involved with people's revolutions in country after country which leads to regime change. And Soros's NGO network is facilitating migrants on what have been described as unseaworthy boats facing a perilous journey to their destination. And this is an article on RT. Again, EU leaders agree to enforce Libya arms embargo with warships despite fears of spike in migration. European Union foreign ministers have agreed to launch a naval operation to enforce an arms embargo on Libya despite warnings from within the bloc that doing so would encourage new flows of migrants to Europe. The EU minister has agreed to the naval operation at a meeting in Brussels on Monday. The EU minister has agreed to the naval operation at a meeting in Brussels aimed at simmering down the country's ongoing civil war. The operation will also have an air component and the possibility of ground forces Italian Foreign Minister Luigi Di Maio was quoted by AFP as saying, The EU ministers agreed to the naval operation at a meeting in Brussels aimed at simmering down the country's ongoing civil war. The operation will also have an air component and the possibility of ground forces. Italian Foreign Minister Luigi Di Maio was quoted by AFP as saying, The move was not universally welcome in Europe, and EU Foreign Affairs Chief Joseph Borrell had even predicted that an agreement would not be reached. Austria in particular opposed the mission, claiming the European ships in the Mediterranean would be seen by migrants as a rescue fleet and would prompt more to attempt perilous sea crossings. A naval blockade would do little to stop the flow of arms into water on Libya, as most weapons arrive by land and air, Austrian Foreign Minister Alexander Schallenberg has argued. German FM Heiko Maas assured his wary counterparts that the mission would focus only on the eastern Mediterranean, where the weapons routes run, while borrowed out of the if it creates a pull factor, that is to say the ships attract migrants, the mission will be stopped. The mission replaces Operation Sophia, a 2015 naval mission in the Mediterranean, suspended in March 2019 after Italy objected to European warships rescuing and landing migrants in its ports. Continuing as an aerial surveillance mission since last March, Operation Sophia was formally ended on Monday, and this was published on the 17th of February. Libya has been consumed by conflict since the NATO-backed rebellion toppled the government of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011 and executed the long-ruling African leader. Civil war is currently raging between the UN-backed government of National Accord, based in Tripoli, and the Libyan National Army under the command of General Khalifa Haftar. Haftar's forces swept westward from their stronghold of Tobruk in recent months and now hold territory on the outskirts of Tripoli. A ceasefire between both sides is close to collapsing. The deputy head of the US mission to Libya warned on Sunday. There's another article here on RT. EU nations bicker over Libya arms embargo, fearing warships would encourage migrants to cross Mediterranean and flood Europe. 
Russia also has failed to revive a new-led naval mission to uphold the arms embargo in Libya, with some dissenting voices in the bloc arguing that the ship's presence would attract migrants setting out from African shores. EU foreign ministers have unlikely to support the return of Operation Sophia, a maritime mission in the Mediterranean launched in 2015 to enforce the embargo. I don't think today we are going to be able to reach an agreement, Europe's foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said, expressing hope that disagreements can instead be resolved by the next meeting in March. Multiple countries had some final reluctance, he explained, without going into details. While Borrell said the situation on the ground in Libya is very, very bad, humanitarian considerations don't seem to play a big part in the EU's rationale. Ahead of Monday's talks, Borrell's office distributed a memo urging EU nations to agree on the naval mission. The document warned that if the 27 members fail to reach an agreement, the EU will become irrelevant and others will continue to determine the development of events in Libya. However, the article continues, not every EU nation shared the kind of geopolitical thinking. Austrian Foreign Minister Alexander Schallenberg insisted that something new had to be put in place, a military operation, not a humanitarian operation. Later he told Germany's devout newspaper that bringing Operation Sophia back on track would mean EU warships having to rescue illegal migrants crossing the Mediterranean in the hope of reaching European shores. Austria supports increased aerial surveillance and even the deployment of EU border guards, but it still believes that a naval mission won't help to keep the embargo in place. At a meeting in Vienna a few days ago, my Libyan counterpart confirmed to me that a maritime mission is unsuitable for controlling the arms embargo, Schallenberg stated. It is a fact that arms deliveries to Libya are mainly coming by land and air, so a group of military ships won't make any difference, he argued. Italy also insisted that the renewed mission should not focus on rescue operations and should instead deal with mid-sea patrols only. The reactivation of Operation Sophia is possible with a profoundly revised mandate and a focus on the arms embargo in Libya, Italian Vice Foreign Minister Emanuele Del Rey told Waters last Tuesday. Heike Maas, Foreign Minister of neighbouring Germany, said that Europe's migration problems can only be solved if Libya does not remain a failed state, when it would be a lot less of a failed state if Britain and America didn't invade on a manufactured pretext, creating civil war. Fewer migrants would embark on an illegal journey to Europe if the region becomes more secure, he suggested. Luxembourg Foreign Minister, but the idea is not for it to be secure. That's why it's not secure. Luxembourg Foreign Minister John Asselborn backed Berlin's stance but took a swipe at Austria's stubbornness. It's too much to abandon or break without consensus just to avoid having to save a few people at sea, he said. Operation Sophia was suspended as a naval mission in March 2019 after Italy objected to European warships. Rescuing and landing migrants in its ports it is now mainly limited to aerial surveillance. This is on SputnikNews.com. Turkey to deploy special forces to Greek border to prevent Athens pushing migrants back. Minister. A migration crisis on the Turkish Greek border erupted after Ankara announced it would no longer be preventing refugees from going through its territory to Europe in violation of previous agreements with the EU. Turkish Interior Minister Suleyman Soylu was announced that Ankara will deploy 1,000 special operations police officers at the border with the EU to prevent migrants from coming back. He added that the EU border security agency Frontex had pushed around nearly 5,000 migrants back to Turkey, injuring 164 in the process. Turkey would deploy 1,000 special operations police officers to prevent migrant pushback at the border, the minister said as quoted in the newspaper Daily Sabah. The measure comes as a response to a decision by the EU to push back the new wave of migrants, mainly coming from Syria's Idlib province via Turkey and trying to force their way through the Greek border. The Greek worries are our worries, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said after visiting the border. Well, they weren't when you destroyed Greece. European Union destroyed Greece financially and therefore in other ways. They weren't worried about the Greek people then. Von der Leyen added that migrants have been lured through false promises into this situation. Since the migrant crisis on the Turkish Greek border started, Athens has prevented nearly 35,000 migrants from crossing into the country. It also promised to deport the hundreds of those who made it to the other side in the near future. 
the new wave of migrants started pouring into Turkey after the situation deteriorated in Syria's Idlib province, which is mostly occupied by militants and terrorists. Turkish forces started a military operation in the province against the Syrian army, further worsening the situation. In light of the refugee influx, Ankara announced that it will no longer be preventing migrants from trying to make it to Europe, thus violating a 2016 agreement with the EU. Under this accord, Turkey promised to prevent new migrants from crossing into Europe via its territory and accommodate them while Brussels paid billions of euros to Ankara for hosting them. There's an article here about the way that migration is impacting Greece in the Daily Mail. Furious Greeks demonstrate against plans to build more migrant camps on their islands after a surge of refugees pushed existing detention centres to breaking point. Greek islanders that have been hit the hardest by the country's refugee crisis have set up protests in Athens to march against plans to build new detention camps. Officials called off a meeting that had been planned with the government today. This was published on 13th February and staged the demonstration outside Parliament. They were joined by hundreds of island residents. Lesbos, Samoa and three other islands in the eastern Aegean Sea are struggling to cope with severe overcrowding at camps for refugees and migrants following a surge in arrivals from nearby Turkey. The government earlier this week announced an initiative to build detention facilities on the five islands, arguing that the move is vital to properly organise the registration of asylum seekers and deport migrants denied international protection. But island authorities are planning legal challenges and blockades at the sites where the new camps are planned to try to block construction. Stratis Catelis, mayor of Lesbos capital, Mytilene, said the protests had started after the government failed to fulfil a pledge to drastically reduce the number of migrants on the island over the winter months. We don't believe their assurances that all existing stretches will be shut down, Catelis told the Associated Press. People on the islands opened their homes and gave what little they had to help refugees, but unfortunately, because of bad policies, the situation is now out of control, he said. Europe has put out walls against us and trapped immigrants and refugees on our island. The point is, a lot of migrants are not refugees. A lot of them are people just taking an opportunity. A lot of them are single men. A surge in migrant arrivals last year was called serious overcrowding existing refugee camps on the islands with some 20,000 at a facility on Lesbos built to house 3,000. Migrants on the islands are forbidden to travel to the Greek mainland without special permission under a 2016 agreement between the European Union and Turkey aimed at limiting the number of illegal crossings to Europe. Today's protest ended peacefully and no arrests were reported, police said. The outcome of mass migration is not leading to curtailing of migration for two reasons. A, in terms of crime and grooming gangs and things like that police don't want to be seen as racist by doing their job actually responding to it and also because migration is a massive part of the cult's agenda or a way to realize the cult's agenda in certain countries now there are what's known as sanctuary cities where law enforcement don't go and they're they're basically designated for migrants and in sweden now there's places law enforcement won't go. No go zones in Sweden because of the crime and the catastrophe that's come as a result of mass migration into Sweden. I've mentioned before in All Roads Lead to Israel, part two, a document called The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which apparently is a forgery. But what then is it a forgery of is the question. I explain the forgery claim from another angle in All Roads Lead to Israel, part two. Any mention of the protocols, I've got a copy of the book myself, any mention of the protocols is an automatic sign, apparently, of anti-Semitism. But you'll notice it's called Protocols of Elders of Zion, not Protocols of the Elders of Jewish People or Judaism. Because it's nothing to do with Jewish people. Zionism is nothing to do with Jewish people. It's a political philosophy. At its core, a secret society placing its agents in positions of power and influence, which is controlled by the 
cult and protocols talk about installing a king of the Jews and a world ruler which is connected to the plan for a rebuilt Solomon's temple on the site of the current Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I talk more about this in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 2. I've said for years and years and years that the elite's agenda seeks a one world government and this is all part of that agenda. I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 2 what exactly that world ruler is actually planned to be. One of the effects of migration has been distrust and frustration with the government over their failings at dealing with migration in the migration crisis and this is planned to be exploited to create the post-democratic society which is actually planned to be a technocracy see people talk about fascism or communism or democracy or socialism all these different ways of structuring society but a technocracy is the idea unelected bureaucrats and technocrats and a society controlled and surveilled by technology this is all placed into context in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 2. Where they're going is a post-democratic government. The protocols say, bear in mind these were written towards the end of the 1800s. This is all connected to the plan for a one world religion, which I've talked about before, which is the religion of the cult. Which is why one reason why migration is happening on the scale that it is to remove the culture of European and other countries, as it is at the moment. Merging culture to remove culture. And when you look at the traits of the cult's belief, which I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 1, and the belief of the extreme Islamic believers, what some people call ISIS, was really Wahhabism, as I said earlier. They're basically the same. And as I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 1, the cult which controls Israel is the same cult that controls Saudi Arabia, the same cult which controls the military intelligence network, which was responsible for arming and basically creating Islamic State. And of course, Britain and America send weaponry over to Saudi Arabia, the leadership of Britain and America in successive administrations, because Britain and America are controlled by the same cult which controls Saudi Arabia. When you see the connections, it all makes sense. And the protocols say this, the Supreme Lord who will replace all now existing rulers, dragging on their existence among societies demoralized by us, Societies that have denied even the authority of God from whose mist breaks out on all sides the fire of anarchy must first of all proceed to quench this all-devouring flame. Therefore he will be obliged to kill off those existing societies that we should drench them with his own blood, that he may resurrect them again in the form of regularly organised troops fighting consciously with every kind of infection that may cover the body of the state with swords. This chosen one of God is chosen from above to demolish the senseless forces moved by instinct and not by reason, by brutishness and not humaneness. These forces now triumph in manifestations of robbery and every kind of violence under the mask of principles of freedom and rights. They have overthrown all forms of social order to erect on the ruins the throne of the king of the Jews. But their part will be played out the moment he enters into his kingdom. Then it will be necessary to sweep them away from this path on which must be left no knot, no splinter. Then it will be possible for us to say to the peoples of the world, Give thanks to God and bow the knee before him who bears on his front the seal of the predestination of man, to which God himself has led his star, that none other but he might free us from all the before-mentioned forces and evils. And what that's talking about is, yes, this king of the Jews, this world ruler that's planned, but also the classic technique, which I've mentioned many times, of creating a problem, some crisis, or it could be a, any kind of problem, getting a public reaction to it through the pathetic, unquestioning media, which just reports it in the way that you want it reported, even though many of them went, realize that's what they're doing they just take the official line and repeat it you've got the public reaction of fear of outrage of do something and then you openly offer the solution to the problems the network you represent has created and this is a technique that's used all the time 
And this is an interesting quote from a guy called Albert Pike, who was a, still is a legend of Freemasonry, and he was the supreme pontiff of the universal Freemasonry. And he was said to have written a letter in 1871, a plan for three world wars. The problem was, by the time the letter was found, the first two world wars had already happened. So any credibility lies in what was said about the third world war, in terms of the way it was said that it would play out by. And the letter was first claimed to exist by British-born Canadian intelligence operative William Carr. He wrote a book called Satan, Prince of This World, and he talks about this in there. And Pike is quoted as saying, Nations will be constrained to fight the point of complete physical, moral, spiritual and economical exhaustion. We shall unleash the nihilists. Nihilists are defined as the belief that all values have no value, basically. Nothing is... Life has no objectively meaning or purpose or value, basically. We shall unleash the nihilists and the atheists, and we shall provoke a formidable social cataclysm, which in all its horror will show clearly to the nations the effect of absolute atheism, origin of savagery, and of the most bloody turmoil. Nihilism also advocates violence and terrorism without discernible constructive goals, because according to nihilism, there is no point in anything. ISIS are basically an example of nihilism. The quote goes on, Then everywhere the citizens obliged to defend themselves against the world minority of revolutionaries will exterminate those destroyers of civilization and the multitude disillusioned with Christianity whose deistic spirits will from that moment be without compass or direction, anxious for an ideal but without knowing where to render its adoration, will receive the true light through the universal manifestation of the pure doctrine of Lucifer. Basically, the same belief as the cult brought finally out in the public view. The manifestation will result from the general reactionary movement which will follow the destruction of Christianity and atheism, both conquered and exterminated at the same time. And protocols say this on the subject of the chaos and the frustration with society that Pike's quote refers to. It is indispensable to trouble in all countries the people's relations with their government so as to utterly exhaust humanity with dissension, hatred, struggle, envy, and even by the use of torture, by starvation, by the inoculation of diseases, vaccines, as we would call it, by want, so that the population see no other issue than to take refuge in our complete sovereignty in money and in all else. But if we give the nations of the world a breathing space, the moment we long for is hardly likely ever to arrive. And it's all part of creating this society of chaos and distrust in government, which leads to the post-democratic society, which I mentioned just now. It's a long-term agenda. It goes back a lot longer than most people would even begin to believe. And this whole thing about a one-world religion, which I mentioned earlier, part of creating that society where this universal deity, which the cult worships, is to expose religions and to expose the, I mean, when you look at mainstream religions, the common themes between them in terms of the story of the religion is are stunning when you actually look at it. I mean, the Jesus story goes back much earlier. It goes back to Babylonian times in the Trinity of Ninos, Tamus, and Semiramis. And I've talked about that in episode 46. The idea of Christmas doesn't originate with Christianity. It goes back to a Roman festival called Saturnalia where it was basically the same as our Christmas. It was in the period of the run-up to our Christmas. And I say our Christmas, what I mean is what we know today is Christmas. And people worshipped the god of Saturn, which was not always where it is now. There's a whole story behind that. And it was said to be, well, I guess that's why the ancients knew about it and worshipped it. It was said to be 
our prime sun, because Saturn is a dwarf star more so than a planet. If it wasn't a lot closer to us than it is now, why would the ancients have worshipped it? Why they even knew about it if it was always where it is now? It's one of the farthest planets away from the Earth, where it is now. The protocols talk about what they call liberals, utopian dreamers, what we would call today progressives or woke people. And of course, it's the woke progressives who are pushing for migration and open borders. That's why so many of them supported Britain staying in the European Union because of the European Union's open border policy. And they say that once this world government, this what we would call today a technocratic world government was in place, they would be played out, basically. That's their job done then. But until then, they will continue to do us good service. Therefore, we shall continue to direct their minds to all sorts of vain conceptions of fantastic theories, new and apparently progressive. And they talk about turning the brainless heads of the population with progress till there is not among them one mind able to perceive that under this world lies a departure from truth. This post-truth society, which post-fact society, which the progressives are massively behind. This is what political correctness is about. It's a long-term agenda. And when you look at the Christian version's plan, they talk about coming of the messianic age and kingdom of God in the world to come. And the whole theme of the end times where there's great trials and tribulations and upheavals. And that's meant to be a sign that Jesus is going to come and sort it out. And of course, that's very similar to the cult's idea of redemption through sin, which I talk about in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 1. And of course, it's very easy to create scenarios which follow that process I mentioned just now, will create a problem, get the reaction, offer a solution to it, which appeared to be some kind of religious experience, but it's actually being manufactured into place. And of course, Christian Zionists would take that to be the coming of the Messiah or Moshiach. And that's all connected into the Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem theme, which I mentioned earlier. And Christian Zionism talks about from Zion shall go forth the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All the same agenda in the end, when you look at it. And the theme of a world ruler, a world king, returning to rule and restore Israel. Now, I'm not religious in any way, but the point is, those who are, are being scammed massively, and it's all part of the agenda of the cult. That's the force behind all this. The cult which claims to stand with Jewish people and want to protect Jewish people through its ultra-Zionist, elite Zionist network, when actually, in truth, it's about massively manipulated Jewish people more than they have anyone else. And they have as much contempt for Jewish people as everyone else on the planet. But they hide within the Jewish community and infiltration and claiming to be of a certain community or background or religion while actually being something else is a trademark of this cult. They hide within the Jewish community and hide behind Jewish people so that whenever anyone exposes them, which is rare, or exposes far more commonly their elite Zionist network, then they can claim anti-Semitism of those people, which is what these ultra-Zionist groups do, who go around trying to censor and deplatform people exposing this and other things that are part of that cult's agenda. And many of them will not even know there's a cult. They'll just think they're doing the best for Israel or... And the Talmud, which is which is a racist document, a Jewish Bible. And, of course, elite Zionists, ultra-Zionists will be very much in favour of the Talmud. They talk about a leader who will redeem Israel in the end times and that all the nations of the world will recognise Moshiach to be the world leader, the Jewish king, the world Jewish king. And when you look at the number of Jewish people in the world, it's massively less, a lot of people would think, 
and the idea that God and any God, a God, would have preference for them, given how tiny in number they are, over everyone else is ludicrous. But that's what Jewish people, some anyway, those that go with it, elite Zionists, all the rest of it, are asked to believe. Which is the subject now? There's an article here on PrisonPlanet.com. Just some great articles. Hungarian Foreign Minister warns UN's push for mass migration threatens whole of humanity. Hungarian Foreign Minister Peter Sejart warns that the United Nations is spending money on facilitating the program of a mass migration that threatens the whole of humanity. But that's the idea, as I've said, create the chaos and then offer the order out of the chaos. And change the culture of Europe and other countries towards the end that I've just described. Remove the culture that was there before. Instead of spending money on counter-terrorism, the UN is funding programs that encourage people to leave their homelands and head to Western countries. Sejart held a conference in Vienna on Tuesday. This mass migration process poses a very serious threat to the whole of humanity, he said. We call on the UN to include in its budget counter-terrorism and to spend less on migration, the minister told the conference, which was organised by the UN. But the United Nations is a an organisation which was brought into being by the Rockefellers. Passed in 2018, the UN Compact on Migration is not legally binding, but governments are under international pressure to follow its mandates. I've talked about the Compact before, which wants to make criticism of migration a criminal offence and even insists that media organisations news channels etc news current affairs programmes that have anyone that criticises migration are shut down Britain has said that it will sign up to it I talked about it, it's called the Global Compact on Migration and I talk about it in episode 45 why is that the plan? because of the reasons I've just said British MEP Janice Atkinson warned that the pact, this Global Compact on Migration could lead to Europe being flooded with 59 million new migrants within the next six years. Dutch MEP Marcel de Graaf also said the pact would grease the skids for laws that would criminalise criticism of mass immigration as hate speech, which is what I've just been talking about. And, you know, I would hope this segment and all the other times I've mentioned migration, that I've made the point very clear, especially with what I've just talked about with the protocols, that migration is and what is planned to come out of that is not just happening as a result of incompetence by politicians. There's a far bigger picture here, and it goes back, well, centuries. Look at the protocols alone as evidence of that, and it's been planned all along, and it's all part of creating this technological, technocratic society, which has been the plan from the start. It's connected into the smart cities agenda, and criticism or questioning of Islam or migrants is targeted as Islamophobic. And yes, that is because if you can't win the debate, don't have the debate. I say there's another reason it's targeted, and that's because, as I said earlier, same cult that controls Israel controls Saudi Arabia and is the force behind the belief known as Wahhabism, which is what people call extreme Islam. And understanding that and what comes from further questioning, further understanding of that opens up a much wider picture. It's the same as criticism of Israel or powerful Jewish people being jumped on. It's not about protecting Jewish people from discrimination. It's about stemming the flow of understanding which comes from further questioning, nipping it in the bud at source so it doesn't, the questions don't, and therefore the answers don't continue to come from that initial criticism or questioning. There's an article here on Breitbart about the effect in Sweden of migration in terms of employment. In Sweden, just 1 in 16 new migrants have a job that is not being subsidised by taxpayers. The Swedish Employment Service has revealed that just 6.1% of new arrival migrants were able to find full-time work not subsidised by the government last year. 
This was published on the 4th of February. The figures further illustrate the failure of new migrants to Sweden, which has one of the most generous welfare states on earth, to find real work while the vast majority remain totally unemployed. The number reflects those migrants who have been in the Employment Services Establishment Programme for at least 90 days and is down from 2018, which saw 6.6% of migrants in work not subsidised by the government's Swedish broadcaster SVT reports. The rate for migrants employed in jobs that are subsidised was much higher in 2019, at 24.5%. Such jobs include startup businesses as well as so-called extra services, which generally include positions in the public sphere or in non-profit companies. Stefan Johansson, head of unit at the Employment Service, said that the decrease in migrants employed in any job after 90 days, just 31%, could be explained by a downturn in the economy and said that work on extra services had been halted as well. The extra services have proven to be very effective for this target group, which has led them to a greater extent to come to work after having an extra service, he said. Migrant unemployment rates are consistently much higher than those of native-born Swedes, with many reports showing the migrant rate being several times that of natives. According to Statistics Sweden's Integration Database for Health Insurance and Labour Market Studies, around 90% of the migrants who arrived at the height of the 2015 migrant crisis and gained permanent residency status are unemployed. Migrant unemployment numbers are unlikely to dramatically increase in the near future, as Sweden's general unemployment rate has been rising for several months. October Eurostat figures put the country's unemployment rate at 24th out of the now 27 EU member states. The situation shows no signs of improving this year either, with Swedish bank Handelsbanken stating that the country shows weak signs of growth and expects unemployment rates to remain high. And what's designed to take over when mass unemployment hits, especially as it could with a massive financial crash, going back to the first article today about coronavirus, the AI robotic automation takeover of society, which I've talked about in the last episode, which is being orchestrated ultimately by the cult together with the mass migration, is creating the Hunger Games society, which I've talked about in episode 4, and is taking employment options away from the native populations of Europe in favour of migrants. Housing and benefits are being given to unemployed migrants. These are facts, and it's about time they were acknowledged. The protocols say, we shall so wear them down that they will be compelled to offer us international power, a nature that by its position will enable us without any violence gradually to absorb all the state forces of the world and to form a super government in place of the rulers of today, the super government administration. Its hands will reach out in all directions like nippers and its organisation will be of such colossal dimensions that it cannot fail to subdue all the nations of the world. And they talk about no one outside of ourselves will any longer direct the force of legislation. Protocols say basically that nationhood, national identity and the right of the nation to make its own rules will basically be brought to an end as part of this King of Israel theme I'm talking about. Protocols say people will submit to the regime that they talk about because in their words they will know that upon these leaders will depend their ruinings, gratifications and the receipt of all kinds of benefits. And remember these words were written towards the end of the 1800s because it's a long planned agenda we're looking at. Another source of the master plan is the speech made by a guy called Dr. Richard Day in 1969, which I talk about in episode 18, among other episodes, and see that episode for the background. But he said this in 1969, privately owned housing would become a thing of the past. The cost of housing and financing housing would gradually be made so high that most people could not afford it. People who already own their houses will be allowed to keep them, but as years go by, it will be more and more difficult for young people to buy a house. Young people would more and more become renters, particularly in apartments or condominiums. More and more unsold houses would stand vacant. People just couldn't buy them. But the cost of housing would not come down. The price would be held high, even though there were many available. 
people would not be able to buy these and gradually more and more of the population would be forced into small apartments. Small apartments which would not accommodate very many children. Then, as the number of real homeowners diminished, they would become a minority. There would be no sympathy for them from the majority who dwelled in the apartments, and then these homes could be taken by increased taxes or other regulations that would be detrimental to homeownership or would be acceptable to the majority. Ultimately, people would be assigned where they would live. This would all be under the control of a central housing authority. Have this in mind when they ask how many bedrooms in your house, how many bathrooms in your house, do you have a finished game room? This information is personal and is of no national interest to government under our existing constitution. But you'll be asked those questions. Well, of course, in Britain, now we have the bedroom tax. People are being asked those questions because this is a long planned agenda. And he said those words in 1969. There are people sleeping on the streets in Britain, in America, in other countries. In Britain, there are people sleeping on the streets who work but still cannot afford to rent. Heart on the sleeve. Brain up the backside, progressives don't see a problem with continuing to let in more migrants, however, and then complain about lack of housing, hospital beds and jobs. It's incredible, but fortunately it's true. I talked to one guy the other day about migration and the European Union with its open border policy, and this guy said, it's not the migrants you need to worry about, it's the elite. So I asked the obvious question, what if the elite want the migration? What about if, through front people like George Soros... They are manipulating the migration into place. What about through their manipulating invasions of countries? They are manipulating the migration into place. I could tell from this guy's reaction, he never considered the idea that actually the elite want the migration and are behind the migration into Europe and other parts of the world. And this is a trademark of the progressive mentality. They just see their own view and never ponder any other possibility. The solution then is very simple. We need to ponder other possibilities and ask these questions and then we'll get some very revealing answers so that's it for this week that's the news that's the contesting connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye <laughs>